So I'm here for the next couple of weeks, and I thought I would talk this week and next week about uh, a list that the Buddha talked about called the Five Hindrances, which some of you I'm sure are very familiar with, both in your reading but also in your experience. They're um, aspects of our minds that appear when we try to meditate or when we try to live our lives consciously. Um, five habitual tendencies of the mind. Uh, so I'll probably talk about the first one or two today and the rest next week. We'll see how we get on. When the Buddha was living, one of the ways he was known was uh, as the great physician. The, the physician treating the human condition, this human dilemma we called life. And like any physician, he would apply certain uh, principles to understanding the human condition. And when he was looking at an issue or a problem or difficulty or suffering, he would sort of, the, 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 the way he would analyze would be looking at the problem, looking at the cause, looking at the relief, and looking at the method to get to the relief. In a way, that's how he summarized the whole of his teaching, looking at the cause of the human situation, um, looking at the, the reality of suffering, looking at the cause of suffering, looking at the relief, the possible freedom from pain, the possibility of happiness and freedom, and the methodology to get there. However, he, he started uh, from a place uh, since he began teaching after he was fully awake, his um, starting point was different than the average physician in the sense that um, he understood the human nature, the human condition, to be one, as he said in his own words, something like, the nature of this mind, the nature of who we are, is essentially pure and radiant. That we start with this sense of wholeness, this sense of purity and completion. However, we don't experience that sense of wholeness and peace because that sense, of, uh, that sense of ourselves is obscured by what he called visiting habitual tendencies of mind. Habitual patterns that we get drawn into that cause uh, obscuration of that sense of original wholeness and purity that leads us into a state of suffering. And I'll be talking a lot about that today. So our practice here in the Dharma, in, the, in, the, in, the, in our Buddhist practice, is twofold. One, to understand the truth of who we are. One, to understand our nature. To understand what it means to be a conscious human being, to be awake, to be free. And what it means, or how that, how that nature is obscured, how the, how the essential wholeness uh, that is our essential nature, how that becomes, how we lose touch with that, which we clearly do. So one of the ways that um, we, that, that sense of our original wholeness or goodness or whatever is obscured is by these five hindrances, these five tendencies of mind. They're tendencies that um, 
somewhat seduce us away from a simple state of presence, a simple state of being, a sense of ease. So these tendencies, the five hindrances, obstacles, sometimes they're called doorways, because anything that's an obstacle, if really worked with, becomes a doorway to freedom rather than not, rather than an obstacle. These hindrances are uh, attachment or the or the quality of desire, craving, grasping, the wanting mind. The opposite force of that, which is aversion, resistance, avoidance, denial, repression. So these these tendencies of moving towards and moving away from experience, wanting something, not wanting something. And then the energetic qualities of um, restlessness and anxiety. It's opposite dullness, sloth, uh, torpor, and the quality of doubt. So they're the five uh, major hindrances that we can see in our meditation practice. Or as Snow White described them as greedy, grumpy, fidgety, sleepy, and confused. (laughs) That's how we more know ourselves, right? So, can we turn Snow White's dwarves into uh, something more wholesome than that? In some ways, the, the Buddhist teachings lay down the invitation of asking us, what do we want our minds to, be, to become? Who, how do we want to be in this world? The Buddha talked about the, the one aspect of the practice being the movement of our lives from more unwholesome states of mind to wholesome states of mind. And that we clearly have, the, to some degree, the power of choice about which way we direct our life, which way we direct our energy and attention, which way we incline our mind. Through our practice, we can see that when we practice something, it lays the seed uh, for that seed to sprout in the future for that quality to, de- to develop. So for instance, if we make a conscious practice of being generous, more than likely we'll end up being more generous. If we consciously develop thinking a lot, which we do, or getting angry a lot, or getting reactive a lot, guess what? In time, we'll become more reactive and greedy or angry. So today I'm going to spend most of the time talking about this force of grasping desire and, and its, and it's, it's uh, opposite of aversion and some ways to work with it in our, in our lives. So the first hindrance and really the primary force of the universe, really this force of attraction, the force of desire, the force of movement towards an object the forcement of one wanting to hold on to things, wanting to change things, wanting to make our experience a certain way, really is a primary force. I mean, every little quark, quark and little subatomic particle is governed by these principles of attraction and aversion, attraction and repulsion. So often there's a lot of misinterpretation about this aspect of the teaching partly because it's often translated as desire. And people say, well, you know, if I can't have desire, I wouldn't have gotten here this morning. I wouldn't have eaten my breakfast, and I wouldn't have gotten out of bed, and I wouldn't have done a lot of things, and I'd probably end up penniless on the street. 
so we, the teachings discriminate between different kinds of desire, different kinds of this force of mind. The force of desire that leads to wholesome states of mind and the force of desire that leads to unwholesome <coughs> states of mind. So for example, an addict seeking the next dose of whatever it is, is clearly uh, an act of desire leading to more desire and generally more states of suffering. Another example would be um, somebody who's obsessed with, say, news, information, say about the war, which a lot of people are, that creates a lot of negativity, the more desire and grasping for that news will lead to more states of reactivity. There's the wholesome forms of desire. Some are more natural, like the desire to go to the bathroom, desire to drink water and eat for community, for friendship. A lot of very natural, ordinary desires that lead to uh, wholesome states of mind. There's the kind of desires that lead to greater sense of ease and freedom. The desire to meditate, the desire to be generous, the desire to be kind. When we, when we act on those, generally creates a greater sense of ease and well-being. So it's important to distinguish between wholesome and unwholesome desire, to really look at that in your experience to see which ones are you following. So how can we tell the difference? Sometimes it's not so clear. When, I, when the teachings talk about desire, which is really the more accurate translation is grasping, craving, uh, attachment, they have, have much more of a charge, much more of a energy behind them. Generally, the way to, to tell when we're caught in that state of mind, that caught in the hindrance, is there's a sense of contraction. There's a sense, you can usually feel it in the body. When you're really longing for something, there's usually a sense of contraction, which is actually experienced as unpleasant. Sometimes in the belly, sometimes in the heart. There's usually a sense of tunnel vision, as in we sort of block out the rest of the world and fixate on this one thing that we're seeking, usually to our own detriment. And I have rather a humbling example to, to share of this. One of my first retreats, I was in England, as in Wales actually, and um, it was a long meditation retreat and I was pretty new to everything and I had a strong craving for chocolate, as quite often arises on a retreat because there's not much kind of juicy sense stimulus going on. I didn't have any chocolate, and we were in the middle of nowhere, and the next nearest village was about three miles away, and it was Wales, and it was a wintry, wild uh, week, raining a lot, and my roommate got sick with a cold, and I thought, well, I'll go and I'll try and go to the store, get him some uh, medicine, and yeah, pick up, you know, the odd bar of chocolate here and there, and so off I went, put my raincoat on, walked three miles through the through the, the hills, and got to the got to the store, and blinded my, by my desire for chocolate, and I was loading the pot chocolate into my pockets, totally forgot about the medicine, walked all the way back, got to my room, it's like, oh my god, I forgot my roommate's sick. That's tunnel vision. <laughs> That's being blinded by the force of my longing. I'm pretty innocent, the longing for chocolate's pretty innocent, right? But it has consequences in our life. Another aspect of this sense of grasping is um, when we're wanting something, it 
concurrently creates a certain resistance to what is. Usually when we're wanting something, we're also not wanting the current experience. It creates a certain unsatisfaction with what is, because it's seeming, it seems that the happiness is going to be better when we have this thing, and therefore it somewhat, by conclusion, negates what's happening right here. It often obscures our ability to see clearly. An example of this is someone, say, in a committed relationship, um, who has some longing for some somebody else, and and I'm sure you've all seen this and known this, uh, someone uh, acting out in a relationship, um, and not seeing clearly the consequences of that action, a cause of a lot of suffering in relationship, infidelity. There's also a lot of belief systems tied up in this sense of grasping, the sense of wanting, which is really comes out of delusion. The fundamental cause of uh, this form of grasping is actually ignorance. So an example of that would be um, when we fixate on something, it could be something very small like, I've got to get my coffee before I go to Spirit Rock because I'll just hate that meditation if I'm asleep, you know. Whatever it is, or if I, you know, I can't wait for this thing to end, so I'm going to go get some more coffee after the, after the meditation, because <laughs> that didn't do it either. There's a there's an often underlying belief system that that experience is going to do it, that that experience that I'm seeking is really going to be that which I'm looking for. It's going to. We sort of keep. It's almost like we have this constant carrot dangling in front of our nose, that's saying this is going to do it. Oh, and then this is going to do it, and then this is going to do it. And if I only get that experience, and I only talk to that person, only get this job, and only get this ice cream and chocolate, I'm going to be happy. And so we follow this carrot around. Not to say that certain things don't bring us happiness, but it's a belief system that that's really going to do it that causes, a, causes suffering. The Buddha, before his enlightenment, one said, Why do I, who am subject to change and decay, seek that which, which is also subject to change and decay? Surely that is not the path to happiness. If I keep, seek, keep seeking experience that keeps changing, surely that's not going to provide lasting happiness. Surely I'm looking in the wrong direction. Why therefore do I not dis- seek that which doesn't why do I not seek that which is deathless, which doesn't change and decay, which is beyond birth and death? So it's almost like we're looking for experience, we're looking at, the, we're looking for happiness in the wrong place. It's one of our fundamental delusions. And what interests me about this whole force of desire, um, and again, it comes from this sort of underlying belief system that we get when we get caught up in wanting something, we immediately have a sense that this moment, this experience, or ourselves, is somehow incomplete. That somehow we'll only be complete and fulfilled if we attain this thing, get this thing. So we sort of um, we lose touch with an inherent sense of 
peace and wholeness that actually is available right here and now, regardless of what we get, regardless of what we do, regardless of what we attain. And of course, when we feel that sense of separateness or sense of lack, of course we look outside to fill us up. That's how we've been conditioned. This is from Rumi. How long will we fill our pockets like children and with dirt and stones? Let the world go. Holding it, we never know ourselves. We never are airborne. How long do we fill our pockets with children like dirt and stones? How long do we seek that which is actually not really what we're seeking for? He also said, that which, that which is doing the seeking is that which we, is that which we are seeking for. That which is doing the looking is that, is that which we are looking for. We're looking often in the wrong place for happiness. And again, I'm not saying that happiness, that we don't have happiness in the world with things and people and experiences. But it's the quality, it's the kind of the quality of investment we place upon it that actually is uh, diluted. If you pay attention to a strong experience of longing, which is a really good thing to do, and you get the object of your desire, whatever it is, it could be as simple as an ice cream, a drink of water, sexual experience, anything. Um, Pay attention to what actually is satisfying. Generally, the peace we get when we finally get what we want is not from the object itself, but from the relief of the longing being suspended. When we're really wanting something, it's really intense, isn't it? And when we get it, when we get what we want, it's like, ah, finally, ice cream, chocolate, whatever it is. And actually, so much of that pleasure comes from the relief of not being caught in that fuel of grasping. Because it's actually quite unpleasant. When we notice that sense of longing in the body, no matter how delicious the object we're desiring, the sense of longing itself is actually quite painful. Because it, we, partly because we feel a sense of separation, a sense of incompleteness until we get something. So here's um, an example of how this manifests in meditation, but also in our lives, really. This is a, you're, I'm not sure if you'll be able to see it from here. It's a subco- subconscious comic strip. And there's a little guy, a little funny looking guy in the top corner. Looks like he's sort of meditating. And he's in this dark space and the bright light is in the corner of the room. And he says, hmm, what's that? I want it. His eyes start growing. Looks good. I've got to have it. His eyes start bulging and salivating. And if I don't have it, I'm going to die. And then he gets it. Yes, yes. Falls over bliss, that bliss of that moment of getting. And he's back in meditation in the dark room. Bright light in the top right-hand corner. Hmm, what's that? (laughs) And on it goes. That's kind of how we do our life. Hmm, what's that? Hmm, what's that? Hmm, what's that? Oh. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. 
But it's just we need to bring our awareness to that whole pattern to see what's useful in that, to see what's actually uh, wholesome, to what's actually bringing a peace of mind, and what's actually just continuing this sense of emptiness and longing. So different ways that grasping or desire manifests in our, in our life and our practice. So wanting, wanting something than what, something, wanting something other than what is right here. So this manifests often as the if only mind. If only, or if only I was awake this morning meditation, I would be happy. Or if only my you know, people didn't arrive late and I could concentrate, or if only I'd had that cup of coffee, or if only my partner was such and such, or if only, you know that mind? If only, da, 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 fill in the blank, I would be happy. Again, it's like a sort of a postponement of happiness by saying, if this happens, then I'll be happy. But until that happens, I can't be happy, I can't be peaceful. And this can happen from the smallest thing like wanting our breath to be different. I wish I had a nice, smooth breath like they teach in yoga. You know, it looks really good. All the yoga teachers do it, you know. You know, it could be the the minutest thing. I wish my eyebrows were different, you know, nice thin lines. And and it can be something really large. It could be our financial situation. It could be wanting the weather to be different in California. You know, wishing the fog would come in or wouldn't come in. Or when it does, it doesn't, doesn't. Uh, wanting the political situation to be different, wanting us not to be going to war with Iraq. Um, The grasping can fixate on anything. Wanting our partners to be different. Anybody experience that occasionally? (laughs) And again, it's not that, that that desire is wrong. It's a natural desire, want people to be different, wanting ourselves to be different. It's the level of attachment we have to that happening is where we suffer. If we demand that we don't go to war with Iraq, <clears throat> and we're holding onto that as a fixed position, guess what? Suffering will arise. Or if we're holding on to our partner must change this pattern. When we attach to that, and of course it doesn't happen because we have no control over our partners, what happens? We suffer. So it's the force of the attachment to the desire if the attachment to the outcome, the attachment to result, that's where the suffering is. We can have any desire we want. It's not necessarily a problem. It's our relationship to it that we have to look at. In the moment of wanting something, anything that I say in this talk, anything that you hear ever hear, um, as is anything in the Buddhist tradition, um, is not dogma. It's something for you to take in, to look at, to think about, see if it's true. So, for example, in the moment of wanting, if you look closely, the sense of self is created and strengthened in that moment. When, When the force of desire arises, the force of I, me, my, separate mark, wanting something, also becomes very strong in that moment. When the sense of self is very strong, there's a sense of feeling separate from everything. When we're feeling separate, there's a sense of 
usually a sense of lack or deficiency and also a sense of fear. When there's that sense of separation and deficiency, there's a sense of longing that arises. It's sort of a mutually, it's like a, it's just like a circle. So look at that in your experience to see if that's true. When you're feeling quite peaceful and at ease with things, the sense of self, the sense of me as this separate being doing my thing is kind of not really there, you're just kind of being peaceful and happy. There's not this strong sense of identity. When we're caught up in, when somebody cuts us off in the freeway, when we're caught in rage, the sense of me and self is quite strong. You know, when the Buddha said the sense of self or this attachment to self is the cause of suffering, this is what he's referring to. So when you notice that, when you notice the sense of grasping arises, when that sense of longing is very strong, just pay attention to that relationship between the longing and the sense of self. So again, like anything in Buddhist practice, we're not seeing all of this stuff so you'll find more reason to give yourself a hard time. Because I don't know, and suddenly now you and now you're seeing all this desire and somehow that makes you wrong or bad. It's more just we talk about this so you can start seeing it to see if there's anywhere that this is causing suffering, where you can free yourself up from pain. That's That's the whole point of this. Not to have a new set of dogma or creed, but to really just see, oh, is this, is this true? Does this, is, this, is this true that, the, that when I'm caught in grasping, does it create suffering? Well, let me have a look. You know, in our culture, um, you know, we've sort of reified desire as like um, the number one sort of cool thing to do, really. You know, our culture is built on desire and greed, grasping, selfishness. So to some extent, we have to be a little bit compassionate with ourselves when we find ourselves caught up in this force. It's not only is it deep human tendency, it's also what we've been conditioned in the last 50 years. So here's an example of this. This is a, something I got from uh, sort of a little trendy outdoor magazine. And it's a guy, young guy, with his baseball cap and his dog sitting in front of a truck. And everything you, people might think a young guy would like, his electric guitar and his scuba diving stuff and his kayak, his mountain bike, his TV, his computer, his bikes, his <coughs> golf set. And he's meditating, looking very serene. Not quite as serene as the dog, but anyhow. It says, Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. (laughs) That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger. (laughs) So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth. (laughs) By looking no further than the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. (laughs) He says it gives him access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. So that's what we that's what we live in. We live in that culture that believes that, you know, and takes whatever spiritual stuff is out there and uses it for selling stuff, you know. It's totally shameless. But that's our that's our world, you know. So no wonder we find ourselves toppling forward wanting this, a bigger house, a nicer car, you know. It's natural. So uh, to not be uh, hard on ourselves and yet to just to be conscious 
you know, another form that this manifests, I see this in myself and I see that in other people. You're sitting Sunday morning, you're having breakfast, feeling pretty happy, just kind of chilling out for the day, feeling a little, and then a little restlessness comes. So you pick up what? You pick up a catalog that's just come through the door. L.L. Bean, or whatever whatever stuff you're into. And then you're flicking through the pages, feeling, you were feeling quite happy, and then suddenly you're, you're looking for something to, to crave, to want. And then you find something, oh great, you know, I've got to buy that. What's that about? It's just a deep habit. We're so conditioned to wanting things. We flick through something, even though we're not wanting anything, to find something to want. <laughs> This is called addiction. This is addiction to wanting. We also notice this um, in a more subtle way, this force of grasping, when we're um, meditating particularly, but not necessarily, when we find ourselves leaning into the next moment. You might notice this with the breath, that you're you're just with the in-breath, but you're sort of half with the in-breath, kind of waiting for the out-breath. And you're sort of with the out-breath, but you're kind of wondering what the in-breath's going to be like. And while you're with one person, talking to one person, but you're sort of like, you're actually waiting to get to the next person. And you're with this phone call, but you're sort of, you know that sort of toppling forward, like always looking for something beyond what's here. Another way that this force of grasping manifests, which is not so much the reaching forward, but it's the more the holding on, the way you hold on to stuff, hold on to experience. You're sitting in meditation, there's a few moments of thought-free bliss. Ah, great. Grab. As soon as we grab, what happens? It disappears. And it's a great teaching. Whenever we try to grab onto something, well, we can't. It, It defies the law of the universe. We can't actually hold on to something for very long. Joseph Goldstein calls it rope burn. You try and hold on to a rope and you're falling down, what happens? You get rope burn. It's kind of what happens in our experience. When we try to hold on to things, trying to hold on to, say, somebody in our lives, say our partner or a loved one, to be a certain way, well, good luck. Can we, can we, hold, can we hold on to somebody to, to stop them changing? to stick, get them to be as they are. No, we can't. We have to actually let people be as they are, but it doesn't stop us from wanting to hold on, right? Or if we buy something new, new car, new shirt, new piece of clothing, you know, when that first gravy stain goes on it, you know, it's such a drag, you know, because there's the, the, the attachment to wanting it to be the same. So lastly, in contra to the, uh, the ads that we sort of seduced into, and this one particularly, the car ad, um, the, the point that this force of desire, of grasping, and the state of mind of peace, which is really what we're seeking, most of us really deep down are wanting a sense of ease and peace with ourselves, with the world, with our lives, with the way things are. The force of desire and the state of peace cannot coexist. You know, this advert is saying, get all this stuff and you'll be peaceful. But the very wanting of it, actually in that moment, curtails the possibility of peace. If you look at your experience, they don't go together. 
when you're feeling peaceful, one of the criteria for that experience of peace is you're free from wanting. When you're caught up in wanting, there isn't peace. So notice that. You know, we, we sort of get hoodwinked into thinking, well, if I, you know, if I get this and get that and get that, I'll be peaceful. But the very momentum of desire uh, both curtails peace, but also strengthens the desire in the future, which also curtails peace. Lastly, um, from a Buddhist perspective, when we, what we're really seeking, um, the generality, the underlying thing that we're seeking, aside from peace, with this movement, in the movement of grasping, the movement towards something, what we're actually seeking, like any being in the universe, is we're seeking a sense of pleasant experience. A pleasant, every, every experience in our world has, an ex, has a feeling tone, pleasantness, unpleasant, or neutral. So for most people, that kind of has a pleasant resonance for most people, I would say. Yeah, it's just like a feeling tone of, oh, like soothing. And if I did that, you notice a sort of unpleasant tone in that? And then there's a neutral, there's a neutral, the experienced feeling tone of neutral. What we're looking for when we're seeking any pleasant thing, any, any object we're seeking, we're looking for that pleasant experience. So the next time you um, get something that you're after, however small or big it is, notice the feeling tone. Because actually it's the feeling tone that we're interested in, not the, not the object. When you get that ice cream or coffee or whatever it is that you're wanting this morning, pay attention to is it really the taste that you're after, or is it the pleasantness that it, the pleasantness of experience that it gives you? So, in terms of working with uh, this this force of wanting, uh, like with any of the hindrances, um, some of the things that I find the most useful are first a sense of humor that we have to be light with ourselves and light with our experience. Um, it's very easy to get into judgment, the condemning, to, oh my God, there I am again, I'm just caught up in longing, God, I'm never going to be free. Da, da, da. To somehow have some space with the whole thing. Um, you know, you on your way to meditation class and there you are finding yourself at the ice cream store, you know, or whatever it is. Um, have some kind of humor about our human predicament. To be heavy about it isn't actually going to help. Um, I don't like the word hindrance, the way it's translated, because it sort of seems like hindrance is like something that gets in the way you have to get rid of. And really, from a meditation perspective, whenever we take anything that we regard as an obstacle to, say, peace, like desire or hatred, if we take that as the object of our meditation, the object of our attention, then in that moment it's no longer a hindrance, it's just the next thing to be aware of. 
You see what I mean? So if we're imbuing something with awareness, we're no longer acting out from it. And it's just the next thing to be aware of. And that's really why we practice meditation. Why we practice mindfulness is we cultivate this quality of mindfulness of awareness. The awareness radically allows us to sort of embrace any experience that we're having. Love, hatred, greed, jealousy, and to um, not be so caught in the middle of it. So we're not about fixing and changing and getting rid of. We're about suffusing with awareness, and that awareness actually radically changes our relationship to what's happening. And it allows a lot more space, a lot more choice, a lot more freedom with what's happening. So an example of that, say this is, um, what could this be that I would like? Um, Say this is a person I'm desiring. This is the grasping, right? This is my lasso, right? So that's the force of grasping. I'm kind of strangling it, you know, wanting it to be just as it is, not changed, etc., etc. When we say letting, when we we talk about the practice of letting go, which we do a lot about letting go of desire, letting go of thoughts, letting go of anything that's causing suffering, we're not talking about letting go of this. We're talking about letting go of the grasping. When I let go of the grasping, then this thing can be as it is. I can actually relate to it without my stuff getting in the way. So if it's a person, I'm suddenly relating to this person more as they are rather than seeing it through my lens of desire. That makes sense. Tilopa said to Naropa, famous Tibetan teachers, it's not the outer objects in our world that bind us. It's our inner attachment to them. So we're letting go of the inner grasping, not the actual thing itself. Often Buddhism gets this rap of being life-denying and like, well, you've got to get rid of desire, therefore you get rid of everything. It's not about moving away from the world. It's about letting go of the desire or the grasping or the distortion that's binding us. That's what we're releasing. So we're not rejecting life or experience. We're just learning to release that which gets in the way of us relating uh, clearly to the world. What I find also very uh, liberating about this mindfulness practice is that it allows us to be with our experience, just as like I was talking about how we imbue awareness, how we imbue, th- imbue things with awareness. When we get to learn to, to be mindful of the force of desire, say in a meditation, and meditation really is a wonderful laboratory of seeing how we are in our lives. You notice a strong desire coming up, say, of um, wanting that knee pain to go away or wanting someone to be quiet when you're trying to meditate or whatever the desire is. It could be a sexual longing, could be you know, career longing, whatever. We get the chance to just be with the force of desire, see it arise, not act on it because we're sitting and I'm ringing the bell and you can't get up, and you see it pass away. That is very liberating, to see that actually we don't have to act out on our desire. I mean, we know that intellectually, but when we see that a desire, no matter how strong it is, is just this pretty impersonal force of energy, comes up, stays around for a while, passes away. 
when I got to see that I didn't have to act out on that, it was very freeing. It was like, oh, you know, I can have all the longing I want, really. As long as I'm clear in my relationship to it, it's just energy moving through, coming and going. Sometimes it's helpful to reflect on the impermanent nature of experience. You know, when, we re- when, we're, when, we, when we're reaching for something, thinking it's going to do it, that, that you really have to have that experience, just pay attention to the, the nature of change, that no matter what, how good the experience is, it's not going to last. It's not actually going to give you the satisfaction that you're really seeking on a deeper level. <laughs> Think about all of the best moments you've ever had in your life, the peak experiences, whatever they are, in meditation, at work, relationship. Where are they? They've totally and utterly gone. They were great in the moment, but they don't last. So other things that help with this force of the wanting mind. There's a few practices that I think really help support that sense of not thinking that happiness lies outside. One is the practice of, uh, or the reflection of gratitude, appreciation. When we turn our minds to that which we have already, rather than that which we don't have, you know, when we keep listening to these ads, we keep in that mindset of what I don't have. don't have enough money, the bigger house, the car, the security. When we reflect on what we do have, we have a huge amount of abundance, a huge amount of prosperity, a huge amount of resources. That, I find, really undercuts the wanting mind when I remember to remember what I do have. Also, the practice of generosity is one that directly works against that sense of wanting rather than what can I get, what can I give when I practice Uh, the quality of generosity, it does help uh, reduce that sense of wanting or deficiency or lack. (coughs) So I think that's enough for today. I've talked way long. Um, I just want to read this last thing by Rumi, which really, I'm sure you've heard it before, is uh, in a way he's kind of talking about the hindrances and he's talking about the spirit in which we work with them. It's called the guest house. This human being is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. I'm looking at this ad here. It's another one of these ads that I I can't help collecting these things. <laughs> if, you see, if you see these ads and don't know what to do with them, please give them to me because I love reading them in, talk, in talks. This is, um, this is from Vogue and it's, um, it was on the seven deadly sins. 
and it's a woman with long nails grabbing lots of gold Rolexes and bangles and actually I was I just caught my eye the Rolex is fifteen thousand nine hundred dollars. Um, anyhow, it's more than I earn in a year, I think. Anyhow, it says it says talking about the seven deadly sins: greed. When it comes to gold bangles and timepieces, you can never have too much of a good thing. <laughs> so enough said. So any uh, comments or questions? that nothing lasts, the good feelings don't last in his moment On one of Jack Hornfield's TEDx, um, which was a while ago, he mentions the suffering that the Buddha went through, and just before, like, which I don't know that great deal about it, the history of Buddha, but that he had a moment then, and he'd gone through, I guess, the physical suffering that he'd gone through a lot of, whatever, the catastrophe. And Jack had mentioned that he had a moment where he remembered himself in his father's courtyard, garden. Mm-hmm. And this moment of peacefulness as a child, of the abundance of the warmth, is what transformed him over to mm-hmm. whatever next phase to take. Mm-hmm. So when you say it doesn't last, that to me must have lasted. Well, it's not that the experience lasted, but the memory reminded him um it's the story that uh, is being referred to um was was it was indeed a turning point when he he'd, he'd done six years of ascetic practice realized that that wasn't actually doing any good <clears throat> for the most part and he was he did have this moment when he was 11 or whenever he, how old he, old he was where he was connecting with a natural sense of ease and peace that was there without any effort, any struggle, any striving, and that he saw that that was the doorway, that that was the um, gateway to being to freedom. So it's not that that experience left; it's just the memory rearose and struck him as the um, you know it was a, it was a trigger for guiding him in his practice. Um, so I don't regard the experiences lasting, of course the memories you know, the memories can last in a way in the sense that we can recall them. Um, but that experience is gone, you know, disappeared. Have you seen the ad for the cell phone that says, wherever you go, there we are? Oh, no. <laughs> Which is a take on a famous Buddhist book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. No, I haven't. There's a lot of amazing ads out there. Yeah. There's, a, there's an ad of a woman drinking uh, orange juice up in the mountains, saying, and underneath it's a photo saying, um, actual photo of woman in Nirvana, because she's drinking Tropicana orange juice. So... Did you have a question? Someone raise a hand over here. Um, Actually, um, this is a great affliction of mine, this grasping nature. It's not. (laughs) I'm shocked. So am I. You're in good company, you know. (laughs) What I've also 
noticed about it um, is how much I don't notice when I'm, you know, really that tunnel vision that you talked about. Um, when I have my eye on something, it's, you know, like, I don't know, my husband and I went to see this movie, The Horse Whisperer, and he came out of the show and um, he said to me, because he tends to be much more of a critical person, and he said, did you notice, he said, that the coffee pot was not on when she came into the house to take a cup of coffee? And I said, really? Coffee pot? <laughs> I said, I was looking at the knobs on the cabinets. And, you know, afterward, it just made me think about how, you know, I go through my, I walk into any room, I walk into my life, and here, you know, I focus on this, and then, you know, there are coffee pots that are not, <laughs> that I don't even yeah. Well, there's a, you know, in, there's a crude Buddhist psychology of personality types, which you may know about the, the three types. People's minds fall into either being more of the desire type, the aversive type, or the deluded type. So the classic, there's a great example. Your husband's obviously more the aversive type and looking at what isn't working, what isn't right, what isn't perfect you're seeing, oh, great doorknobs, or, you know. <laughs> um, and the deluded type actually wouldn't notice any either. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, all, we have that kind of basic, we fall into one of those, you know. So, you know, we generally talk about that, which we need to learn, of course, guess what I am, you know, desire type. And that's where my mind leans towards, you know, pleasing things, um, aesthetics, uh, that's where my mind, um, my ex-partner was more aversive. We'd walk into a hotel room, I'd see, I'd see the great view, she would see the termites. You know? <laughs> I'd say, don't worry about that, just look out the window. <laughs> so there's also just a sort of impersonal nature of which way we lean. Uh, but it's useful to know which way we lean, and because as you say, we see the world through this veil, you know, it's a distortion in a way. You know, most of our perception is distort, distorted by our own tendencies. You know, we're, if we're in love, what do we? We see the world slightly rosy. It's, it is slightly glowy and warm. If we if we wake up grumpy and depressed, the world's kind of a bit gray, and everyone looks ratty. You know, our distortion is our perception distorted by what's by our, by our internal world. The same when we, when the Buddha said, when we, when we're desiring something, our dis- perceptions distorted, distorted because we only pay attention to the desirable aspects. We don't see the undesirable aspects. So when you fall in love with somebody, guess what? We see all the good bits, and we sort of kind of fog out all the difficult stuff that we see about a year later, or two months later. <laughs> <laughs> Great awareness of the longing or desire you have that is unwholesome and is there a skill or a practice you can use in um, using that awareness to let go of it? 
um, you know, I see practice as twofold. I see one, the practice is that the awareness by itself, for the most part, is transformational, in that the more we bring our awareness to something, the more it allows room for change. So, um, so sometimes it does just mean being very conscious of that pattern, and it may also be even acting out in that pattern until we see clearly enough that it's unwholesome. You know, it's like, you know, in, in some ways, if you really know it's unwholesome, but you're still doing it, in some ways, we're not really seeing it. Because if we really saw that it was going to cause us suffering, for the most part, we wouldn't, unless there's a, some kind of addictive quality in there, which we all have that, that, that tendency to. Um, so f- for the most part, I think, for most of us, just cultivating the awareness of it allows change over time. I'm not saying it's instant. There are times when we also have to be more active. You know, if somebody's alcoholic and they hear that teaching of just be aware of it, oh, I'm just being aware of the whiskey, it's going down, it's very nice, and I think I'm a little more. That clearly isn't always the right strategy. You know, we also sometimes need to be more active, and sometimes it means, you know, not hanging out in a bar if we're alcoholic, for instance, which I know some alcoholics choose not to. Um, so there's some, you know, it also means wise action. Sometimes it means being firm and saying, no, I'm not going to do that, because even though I want it and I long it and I can't seem to stop myself, I'm going to, I'm going to not do that. You know? So there's a place for, for wise action that comes out of the awareness. But I think for the most part, the awareness is necessary really to illuminate what's going on. And then, you know, if, if, it, if, it, keep, I mean, if it keeps repeating and keeps taking down that path and it's really suffering. We take action, we ask for help, support. And we all have those places where we know what we're doing is not great and yet we still do it. You know, we're human, that's what we do. So so it's asking yourself, what's the wisest thing? You know, we know, we generally know what the wisest thing to do is. We just have to do it. like to ask about the statement you just made because what I'm involved in is trying, trying isn't quite the word, but allowing um, awareness to develop and not act. I have pattern behavior and acting to change things. Right, right. That's why I stress the awareness of because we're generally too quick to fix it. Right. Which is really aversion. Exactly. Right. And the Awareness of that part of my behavior mm-hmm. um, is actually challenging for me to not do that. Mm-hmm. So that, in a way, the aware the process is almost staying longer. Well, it is actually staying longer, staying present longer than my comfort level mm-hmm. would indicate. Mm-hmm. And there is a judgment part that comes up for me that says, because of all my pattern things, that well, you should have acted before. And then you wouldn't have mm-hmm. certain consequences that are painful. Mm-hmm. The allowing to experience, you know, even those painful consequences, is in some way helpful. It's enlightening. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. informing me that the process of avoidance, of aversion, to prevent all this stuff from happening, has its own price. 
Yeah, it's a really good point. The Dalai Lama said, once said, better to hurt somebody with awareness than without awareness. So, you know, it's an interesting statement. It's not it's like, what does, that, what does it mean, hurt somebody with awareness? You know, because the more aware we are, the less likely at some point in time we're going to see, or the more aware we are, the less likely we're going to, the more likely we're going to see that and change the pattern. If we're hurting somebody unconsciously, there's no hope. So sometimes, as you say, you know, um, and again, we can play with this, you know, play with something that you really get sucked into, whatever it is, and it could be, choose something pretty harmless. You know, we all have our little addictions and little kind of pet, you know, fetishes and whatever. Just play it out, see what happens. Just take your awareness into this thing, often that we may have a lot of judgment, condemning and self-judgment for. Just be aware. You know, I work with somebody with a food addiction, and I said, just track the whole experience, you know, from being at home, going to the store, buying the chips, you know, scoffing them outside. Just track the whole thing. And she did that, and the whole pattern dissolved because she really just paid attention to the whole thing. And it was easy to give up because it wasn't coming out of aversion. It was because the, the awareness allows wisdom to arise. When we just go, I'm not going to do that because that's bad or it's wrong or, you know, whatever. Um, we're just rejecting. It's not, it's not, it doesn't lead to long-term change because you're still suppressing an energy. When you allow something, be with it, and you say, oh, that's actually, you know, really actually doesn't do me much good. It's easier to let go. But as you say, sometimes we have to go through the motions and it's like, oh, right. allow ourselves to inhabit it fully rather than fix, jumping to fix it. Sometimes you have to cope with an addiction when you, it's created too many problems uh, or you can't treat it and then, um, but then the temptation is removed uh, or the, the obstacles to the temptation are removed. I mean, in my case, I tended in the past to buy too many books that more than I dreamed for was trying to read and when I had a precipitous drop in income, I sort of dealt with it because I couldn't buy books. I started buying from the library. But then I took a, uh, I was taking a medication for a sickness, and a side effect of the medication was that it quadrupled my reading speed. And, <laughs> and, but that, that's a because what it actually did is it restored my reading speed to what it had been 15 years earlier. And so all of a sudden, that sort of insatiable reading desire sort of come back. It seemed like, oh, I can, I can go back to getting a lot of books now. And then, then you had to sort of think back, do an extra double take, you know. Uh, so, uh, these things are sort of complicated. <coughs> they are. <laughs> Everyone's wanting to know what your uh, illness is because they want to quadruple their reading right. experience. <laughs> Especially the students of the... It's not going to work. I, I, just, I, I, it's, I had a neurological problem which had slowed down <clears throat> for 15 years it was successfully treated. Good. And it just went back to where it was. 
So any other comments, thoughts, reflections, questions, please? Um, about aversion. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been having a pretty difficult six months. Um, I was diagnosed with diabetes, and then my father got very ill, and then he died, and then there was a lot of conflict between my sister and I, which sort of freed up after a while, and I was able to sit with all of this really well. It was amazing to me. But um, now we're in the process of trying to sell property my dad owned, and things are not going well, and my sister is, I feel like she's avoiding me. And all I can feel is all this aversion, and it's starting to pile up, and I'm starting to feel really lost, and I can feel depression coming on. And um, so I really heard your attitude today. I was really trying to listen to what you were saying. But um, the aversion is feeling really difficult, because I know I'm... I'm really upset with the fact that we're now on the third offer. No, not really upset, but it's frustrating that we're on the third offer and things are once again not going smoothly. And I'm feeling lost. I'm not sure what to do. My sense is you're probably not allowing the aversion. Mm-hmm. That's my head. Mm-hmm. You know, without you know, it's a, you're just presenting a huge situation here, which I cannot address in two minutes, but. My my intuition is um, I, I I would ask you whether you're really allowing the aversion to be there, and to actually to let it rip. It's like to my sense is you're in struggle with the aversion, as if the aversion's wrong. You're in aversion. You know things aren't going right. Your sisters, you two are acting out. There's resistance. There's aversion. There's hatred. There's ill will. There's so just so allow that. Rather than thinking it's wrong, it's not Buddhist, I should be more mindful, that's what's happening. Okay, so so I'm angry. So let the anger be there. Uh, it's not to say we act out from all of that, you know, because there's a difference between feeling it, allowing it, and acting out. Um, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of room for you with yourself to allow that just to be there. This is hard, this is difficult, it sucks, I hate this, I'm hating her, this really is a mess. I wish it were different. That's true right now. So, so allowing that to be there and not thinking it should be different, should be smooth, should be easier, because why should it? You know, this, is, this is how it is. And it's painful and you don't want it. And here it is. And so it sounds like there's some resistance to reality right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wanting it to be smooth. Right. I'm and, going and, to her house in two days, you know. I, Right, and of course you do, and you know, of course you would, and she does too, probably. Um, and it's not. So how do you work with the fact that it isn't? Mm. Sylvia has this lovely four-part thing that I that I watch to uh, work with people in, and I use it a lot myself. Uh, when things are difficult, you first name what's happening. So um, could be. Um, I'm suffering, or I'm angry, or I'm reactive, or I hate, yeah. So you're just naming what's happening, the feeling tone, say. Then you name your, um, you name your, your, all your response to it. Just like what I've been saying, what you've been saying, I don't like it, I don't want it, I hate this, I wish it'd go away, why me, why now? Just you know, really let that be there, give voice to that. And then the third part is a wisdom statement. It's going to change. This will change. This too will pass. 
So you're acknowledging what is, you're acknowledging your response, you're acknowledging that actually it's going to change. And the fourth is you say to yourself uh, a loving-kindness um, statement like, um, may I be free of this, may I be, free of, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, uh, may my heart be at ease in the middle of this difficulty. Because we get, I mean, it's a good example, we get into such a lot of um, struggle with ourselves, particularly when we have sort of taken on a load of Buddhist baggage about how we should be, you know, kind and generous and not aversive and, you know, it's just baggage, you know. It's, the practice is about coming into alignment with the truth. And the truth is, right now you're angry and you're, and you're, you're resistant and aversive. So feel that, allow that. Hurt, grief, sadness rage, feeling let down. Yeah, and it's painful. Because yeah. actually the, a lot of the aversion is, is obviously an overlay of, you know, something deeper that's going on. Except since it feels like hurt, sadness, grief. Yeah. So allow yourself a lot of space um, and get some support. Do you have a support? Do you have people supporting you during this? Yeah, but I've realized lately that I've been sort of losing touch with friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't have as much support as mm-hmm. I have had mm-hmm. So you might want to ask yourself, what do I need right now that's going to support me during this? You know? What resources, whether it's friends, a teacher, sangha, what's going to allow me to to deal with this most effectively? Because you know it's a difficult situation, yeah. both with the death of your father and family conflict, and you know I'm sure it's got history to it, and you know these are always difficult. So, I do have something about to go do, which I'm. I'm sure we'll help shift some of this. I'm involved in a um, shamanic healing training and mm-hmm. part two is coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good. You know, the Buddha also taught as the antidote for aversion, loving-kindness practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the most part, I would say direct it towards yourself. You know, generally he said if you're having aversion towards somebody, the antidote to that aversion towards anything is direct loving-kindness towards it. You're sort of... you're directly working against the force that you already feel, kind of replacing in a way. Um, It might be too much right now to expect yourself to be able to send that to your sister with any sense of genuineness. It just might be too charged because what will most likely happen is it just brings up the fire that's going on. But you could probably do with sending some towards yourself. And, And try sending to her and see what happens. You know, if it's an impossible wall, because there's too much conflict, then let it go. Just do it towards yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good luck with it. Okay, it's uh, one last short, quick question. It's hopefully very easy. <laughs> I, uh, I found very uh, liberating when you said that, that the desire itself is, is, is not the hindrance, but rather <coughs> our relationship to it. 
because I've been consumed by desire. Um, but I don't consider it to be unwholesome because it's uh, connected to love. <laughs> so um, could, uh, uh, could you expand a little bit on the difference between desire and our relationship or our attachment to it? Because the desire is quite pleasant. The, the, the wanting is, 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 is delightful. So, could you give me more? <laughs> <laughs> the desire is pleasant? Oh, yes, yeah, and I was feeling guilty about being so grasping and lecherous and <laughs> desirous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Towards a person? Yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, I have a couple of things to say. One is um, the distinction we make between love and attachment. So, um, or, or metta, which is really a, you know the Buddhist word for love in a way, which is um, a form of love that has no. Uh, attachment on, about how the other person is. You attach love, which is really kind of everyday love that's in pop songs and um, you know, in the culture generally, is more, I love you if you're a certain way and you're nice to me and I'm nice to you. It's a conditional love. And the love that, that spiritual teachings are talking about is a love that's unconditional. You know, when Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself, it's an unconditional love. It's not saying love your neighbor if they shut their dogs up at night. You know, it's love your neighbor as, as they are. Um, so that's one thing, just to clarify that in relationship, just to, just to notice how we move from loving our partners or loved ones as they are to loving them, but I'd love them more if they just would stop doing that. You know, that's conditional love. It's a contract, you know. We're back in commerce. We're back in the world of bartering. Um, the uh, desire that you're relishing in, <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's true, we can get caught up in, you know, the, one of the reasons we get caught up in desire so much is because we do, there is a sort of a relishing quality to it, you know, that you see. Um, I would just encourage. I would just encourage you to keep looking at that longing, desire, juiciness, and just just keep exploring that. I'm not going to say one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> I would not want to take away from your enjoyment, and just just to keep looking at that and notice how it unfolds. Yeah. Good, so thank you for your attention. May our practice here be for the welfare of ourselves and for the peace and harmony of this world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.